here. And for those old fogies like myself, take your hard copy of the Word of God and turn over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. You know, we left off in chapter 2 in Luke's Gospel a couple of weeks ago, and at that time, Jesus was a mere 12 years old, uh, having had a, a unique experience, I guess, of having been uh, left behind uh, due to a, a, a miscommunication between his parents uh, while they were there for the Passover in Jerusalem. And so we saw that episode unfold and we saw some unique qualities about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, even at 12 years old, how he was dazzling even some of the great minds of Judaism there in the temple as he was asking probing questions and, and discussing with these great Jewish religious leaders about the Word of God and, 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 of course, the law and that type of thing. So we could already see that there were unique qualities about the Son of God at that early age that were beginning to emerge in His wisdom and, um, and in His knowledge. And, of course, the Spirit of God was beginning to, to work more and more in His life. So if you're looking at, at your Bible at the uh, end of chapter 2, verse 52, uh, we left off. It said, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And, and, and so now we're fast forwarding, just to help you to understand chronologically what's taking place. As we, as we go into chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke, this is uh, some 18 years later. And so you can do the math. Uh, Jesus and, and, of course, his uh, forerunner, who we'll focus on today, John the Baptist, are somewhere around 30 years old at that uh, prime of life, if, we, if you would. And, and so today I want us, as we begin looking in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Luke, and these are familiar passages. This is, this is a familiar story. Uh, you'll look at this and say, oh, I know that. I remember that. And, and I hope that you do, because the more familiar you are with it, then you can listen to some things maybe I'll share that you didn't know before. Hopefully that will make it even more intriguing and you'll want to invest in studying it even more. But remember, Luke is the gospel writer here. Luke's audience primarily are Gentiles. Unlike Matthew, who's writing primarily to a Jewish, Jewish audience, Luke is writing to Gentiles who are out beyond, if you will, Jerusalem, not having grown up in Judaism, not familiar with a lot of the, the things that, that the Jews are accustomed to in the law and things like that. And so you see that Luke, by the way, who is, a, is an excellent writer, uh, very literary and, and very descriptive and very detailed and very much a historian. And we see that right from the get-go uh, in chapter 3, verse 1. And so what we see happening in the very early portions of chapter 3 of Luke as Luke is, is, is showing us how God is setting the stage in, in a number of ways. He's setting the stage for John's ministry, uh, his prophetic ministry, because as you recall, John the Baptist, as we're known, that's not a denominational affiliation, though we Baptists like to claim him. It was just simply because of the, the method of his ministry, if you will. But anyway, John the Baptist, who is actually related, a distant cousin of Jesus, as we discovered in Mary and then her cousin Elizabeth, uh, having both been pregnant miraculously, if you will, at the same time. Uh, so therefore, we know that Jesus and John were distant cousins, I guess you would say, about the same age. John has been appointed to be the forerunner of the Messiah. In that, he's coming ahead of Jesus 
to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And so as we look out, God is setting the stage. Luke, remember, is writing to a Gentile congregation, if you will. And, and so he's, he's setting the secular stage, if you will. As we look at this first verse, you'll see that Luke has given us a lot of detail. And details are important to Luke. And he's thinking about those Gentile readers who are going to be very interested, not so much just what is transpiring there in Jerusalem, like Jewish readers would, but they're looking at the whole big picture. And so Luke is trying to describe the, the onset of the coming of the Messiah and putting it against the backdrop of historical events and personalities that are, that are on the stage at that time to, to give you a backdrop, if you will. So, first of all, let's begin looking there at verse 1, chapter 3 of Luke. And, and we'll be looking at the Gospel of Matthew also for clarification as we hold these two Gospels up against one another. But notice that Luke says in verse 1, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, or as we learned last time, Pontius the Pilate, uh, being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lacinius, tetrarch of Abilene. Now these names don't mean a whole lot to us. They're not typical names that we come across, except maybe Caesar, Tiberius, and then, uh, or, or Tiberius, Caesar, and then, of course, Pontius Pilate. But uh, these are names that are important, and, and Luke is using them to set the stage. When Jesus was born, on the throne in Rome was a very powerful Caesar by the name of Caesar Augustus, who had the esteem and the support of the Roman Senate, and they affirmed him, and he was a very powerful leader. Uh, he was a very uh, iron-fisted leader, and he helped to unify and solidify the Roman Empire. And, of course, the Senate would not allow him to appoint his own. He couldn't have a son take over the, the throne in Rome. So he worked it out. So he adopted a, distant, a, a nephew, if you will, to uh, come alongside of him as a co-regent. And that co-regent, that uh, future emperor, if you would, was Tiberius Caesar. And so when we see reference to Tiberius Caesar, this is the Caesar who is at the helm in Rome at the time of the ministries of John the Baptist. And of course, we'll see the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the thing that we want to understand, too, is because Rome is ruling the whole civilized world, Israel is very much a, a puppet kingdom, if you will. They, they are being controlled by Rome and then the subsidiaries of Rome, the governors we'll look at also. So Tiberius is the Caesar at the time. Pontius Pilate is the governor in the area of, Ju of Jerusalem, Judea, if you will. Now, I think I shared in the last message that Herod the Great, who was the governor of the area of Judea and Galilee when Jesus was born, and he was the one that had this crazy madman insane scheme to kill all the baby boys two years old and younger so that he could try to kill the 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 jewish uh promised messiah herod uh, when he the great died he had three sons who who were given governorship of portions of the region judea galilee and beyond 
And his son, Archelaus, you may recall when Joseph and Mary were in Egypt and they were making their way back, and they probably contemplated settling in the area of Jerusalem and Judea, Joseph chose not to because he found out that Herod's son, Archelaus, was a, a, the governor of Jerusalem. He was a madman. He was worse than his father. He was brutal. In fact, he was so brutal, so inept as a leader, historians tell us that Archelaus was replaced by Rome by a succession of governors. And they were not part of Herod the Great's family. And the governor at this time is Pontius Pilate. He's taken over in the place of Archelaus, Herod the Great's son. However, Herod the Great does have two other sons who are on the scene who are right here in chapter 3, verse 1. Herod Antipas, who was the governor or tetrarch of the region of Galilee, and we'll see him play into the picture with John the Baptist and later even in the life and the, uh, the ministry and death of Jesus Christ. So Herod the tetrarch of, of Galilee is one of the Herod the Great's sons. And then another son, uh, Herod tetrarch's brother Philip, who is over Aturia, uh, the region uh, just northwest uh, of uh, Galilee. And then we don't know much about this Lysanias, the, who was the tetrarch, excuse me, tetrarch of Abilene. So, but what you see are these secular rulers who are there ruling over the area of Israel. And they are very much in control. And historians have surmised that this, this period of time, if you were looking on a calendar at this time, and you were reckoning, that's an old country expression, figuring in your mind, what date is this? You would go back to the time that Tiberius came alongside of, of Caesar Augustus as a co-regent. And then 15 years later, and hence the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, would place the events that we're looking at in this chapter at about A.D. 26. A.D. 26. So you see Israel struggling now under the dominance of a brutal and, and iron-fisted uh, uh, world power, the Roman Empire, and then their secular governors, if you will, who are ruling over various parts of the area of Israel. Folks, this is a far cry from the promised nation that God had given uh, to Abraham. This is not what the Jews had factored at that point. This is a far cry from that mighty kingdom that God had promised David. And it's not God's fault. You understand when you read the Old Testament that all through the pages of the Old Testament, time after time after time, God warned his people that if you turn from me and you rebel against me, I will allow you to lose your place of prominence in the world. And he did. And he allowed them to go into captivity in, in succession of, of empires like Babylon and Greece and what have you. So, so just envision and try to imagine what it must be to be a Jew, a descendant of Abraham, a, a resident in the area of Israel, and feeling as if there's no, no semblance of the promises that God has made. Things are fairly miserable, if you will, living under that scenario. But also God sets the stage not, in turn, not just in terms of sec, the secular setting, but God sets this, the, the, look at the, the, the religious environment which John encountered when he came on the scene. I mean, we're talking about Israel, the people of God. Oh, they're religious. 
But they're laden down and burdened with a, a, a works-based religion. They're, they're laden by religion, but they're lacking in righteousness. With all the religion that has been promoted by their Jewish leaders at that time, listen, they're no close, they're nowhere close to being in a right relationship with God because they're discovering from, from the practices of their Jewish leaders and the imposition of these laws and, and all the, the, the rules and legalism that they're not any closer to being right in a relationship with God. The Judaism of that day consisted of a rigid form of legalism and also was a works-based form of righteousness that could never and will never reconcile people to God. You understand and I understand and many of them would understand when Christ came on the scene that you cannot be reconciled to a holy God as a lost sinner by our own works. Paul made that very clear in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 when he says, For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, and not by works, lest we should boast. So you got a, you got a heavy, oppressive, secular government ruling everything, in control of everything, taxing you. You've got religious leaders who are, 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 are greedy and, and driven by pride and driven by a desire for power. We see as we look there in chapter 3, verse 2, he, uh, Luke points out that Annas and Caiaphas being high priests, and let me just comment there because it looks as if it, it's been accepted to have two high priests. And that's a violation of the law. That's not the custom of Judaism. There's a reason for listing Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was the previous high priest. He was a very powerful, politically oriented man. He possessed great power among the Jews and there in the region of Judea. And, and, and so therefore the governor just before Pilate felt threatened by Annas. And had, him, had Rome remove him officially, officially from his place as high priest. Well, that's no problem because Annas has some of his sons take over the, the, the position. And then when that was done, he had his son-in-law Caiaphas appointed as high priest. So what you have is you've got a, a high priest, Caiaphas, who is basically a puppet high priest. Because everybody knows that Annas is still very much in control of the religious system of that time. Annas is a very greedy man. He's very, we'll see later as the gospel unfolds, how much of the money collecting that goes on in the temple complex under the name of religion and, and, and the special feast and festivals, he's getting poor, he's getting kickbacks from, you know, coming back to him. He's getting rich. He's got great power. And, and we'll see him factor into the equation. So the setting tells us, this is, hey, listen, if you're John the Baptist and you're coming on as the forerunner for the Messiah, and you're thinking, you know, this would have been an easier job if, if, if Jehovah, if you'd have brought me on the scene while David was on the throne. And we were the premier empire at that time, and David was in power and control, or even Solomon. But you don't get to pick when God brings you on the scene. You don't get to pick when God chooses to use you. And God intentionally sets a very almost grim kind of a setting 
to bring His Son, His Messiah, the Savior of the world. It appears as if all the odds are against Him and, and against His forerunner, John the Baptist. What a dismal setting to try to launch a great spiritual movement. Well, let's look now in detail more at this interesting, interesting preacher by the name of John the Baptist. As we look here in chapter 3, in verse 2, about halfway through. The Word of God, not, not the Scriptures per se. This is, a, this is a spoken communication from God above to the heart of John the Baptist. Okay? The Word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. This is John's prophetic call. Just like Elijah had a prophetic call, or Elisha, or Isaiah, or Amos. You pick them. They all had a moment in their life where Jehovah raised them up and gave them an appointment to proclaim His truth to His people. And so there in the wilderness, now just remember, it says that he was the son of Zacharias. It hasn't been that long, folks, just chapter 1. You remember who Zacharias, his dad was. He wasn't a carpenter. He wasn't a farmer. He was a priest. He was a priest in the temple, as we saw. That's where the angel Gabriel came to. Isn't it interesting that, that Zacharias' son, who was already declared to be the forerunner of the Messiah, he's not functioning in the temple. He's not function, functioning in the religious system of that day. You know why? Because when we go back, all the way back to chapter 1, as, it, as we were concluding, looking at the life of when John the Baptist was born, in, in chapter 1, verse 80, we left off, we left John the Baptist in verse 80. It says, so the child, speaking of John, grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts to the day of his manifestation in Israel. God never intended for, for John to be a priest. God never intended for John to be a part of the religious setting of that day, to be a part of the religious system of that day. His calling was far higher and above that. God didn't, didn't intend for him to be immersed in that. So where we find John is out in the wilderness, outside, just, just west of the Dead Sea. There along the Jordan River, historians and archaeologists tell us that that is probably one of the most barren and foreboding territories in, in, in that part, part of Palestine. And there he is. He's out, in the, out there in, in the wilderness. And this is where God calls him. And in verse 3, And he went into all the region around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, I want you to stop, hold your place there, because Matthew fills in some blanks for us. You'll get a more colorful picture of John, John the Baptist as you go back to Matthew's Gospel, and let me bring you into, up to speed there. And let's look at Matthew chapter 3, begin there in verse 1. In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, speaking of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, saying, The voice of one in the wilderness crying, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
And verse 4, And John himself was clothed in camel hair, with a, a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So he's a man's man. I mean, he's not coming in with a three-piece suit, you know, with all the robes and, and the glamour of a typical priest in Jerusalem. Man, he comes on the scene, he looks like something, you know, out of like Grizzly Adams or something like that. Or, one of, you know, or some of these wilderness shows you see, people living off the land. He's out there in the wilderness and he comes on the scene. Imagine this guy shows up, camel hair, simple kind of garb, you know, with a belt wrapped around his west, uh, waist and he's got honey dripping down one chin and, 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 and locust legs hanging off the other one, you know. And, he, and, and he's preaching a fiery, fiery message of repent. The kingdom of, of heaven is at hand. And look at verse 5 of Matthew chapter 3. Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around Jordan went out to him and are baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to, to, to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, in other words, you bunch of snakes, slithering snakes, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, you have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now let's just stop there for a second. That you would not think of John the Baptist as being maybe uh, a candidate for one of these seeker-friendly churches. Um, I, I don't think he was out to, to win uh, you know, people and make friends and that kind of thing. I think John had a powerful message. It was a very confronting message. It was a message that confronted the hearts of people. John was on the scene in fulfillment of the words of prophecies given in the Old Testament and you'll see in, in the New Testament. In the very last book, 400, 400 years before the New Testament era, before John came on the scene, in the, in the last prophetic book of the Old Testament in chapter 4, these, in fact, these would be the last words of prophecy given for 400 years before John the Baptist came on the scene. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5, verse 5, listen to how God spoke through Malachi. God said, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. Now, Elijah's been dead for a long time, but he's talking about a type of Elijah. He's speaking of John the Baptist, and Jesus will confirm this in his own teaching. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Let's come and strike the earth with a curse. So this was prophesied in Malachi. But do you remember when his father, John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was, had the, uh, the, the vision, the, the uh, angel Gabriel came to, to Zacharias and he revealed to him that his son that was miraculously conceived by uh, Elizabeth at an old age. And, and, and so Zacharias is given this great and glowing prophecy in chapter 1 of Luke. Look there with me. This is the, these are the words of his own father under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit speaking, if you will, to his baby boy. In chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, verse 76, these are the words of Zacharias and he's, he's speaking prophetically, if you will. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, speaking of Jesus. For you, John, 
will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of sins. So you see, even his father prophesied how he would come and assume this great ministry of being the forerunner of the coming Messiah, an event, a person that had been looked for, yearned for by the Jewish people for so many years. And so we see John the Baptist on the scene. He's got a very unorthodox message. Unlike the priests and, 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 and the uh, religious leaders in Jerusalem, he's preaching directly to the hearts of the people. And he's, his, his, his demand is repent. Repent. Turn from your sins. And the method of his ministry also is quite unorthodox because he's doing a baptism that symbolizes this repentance. It's a baptism of preparation. John's baptism is, is, a, is a baptism of preparation. It's to prepare the hearts of the people in baptism. As you go back to Luke chapter 3, verse 3, and you'll see it describes John preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. And, and this is important because it picks up on what even Isaiah in forecasting and, or, or foretelling the coming of the era of the Messiah. He was talking about how the people of God, God was given a call to the people. Listen to the words of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 6. Isaiah, God is saying through Isaiah to the people, he said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Mind you, the Lord is getting ready to come on the scene. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Isaiah prophesied a day when the people through, through God's messenger would be called to turn from their wicked ways, to turn from their sins, and to turn to God. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the essence of biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is not simply changing your mind. Biblical repentance is not simply about being remorseful or having regret over sin in your life. Biblical repentance is a radical change of heart. It's a radical change of direction. It's a radical change of life. And that's what John is calling the people in a way that no one had ever preached before. Turn from your sins. Turn your back on your sinful ways. Don't come to me, John says, with your rituals. Don't come to me with your works so that you think you can impress God, that we, He will accept you. John says, let God's Spirit convict you so that you turn your back. And if that is the intent of your heart, John is saying in his message, he says, then you come and demonstrate that repentance by being baptized. Now, mind you, water was being used by the Jews. They had their ceremonial cleans, uh, cleansing before, you know, partaking in the feast and the days of festivals and things like that. They had their, their ceremonial washings, if you would. They even had baptism. If a Gentile turned to Judaism by faith and was converted to Judaism, they would baptize them because that was a radical change. If you went from being a Gentile to being 
a, a member of the descendants of Abraham, the followers of Jehovah. And that it was symbolized by baptism. So now don't lose the thought here. Imagine for, for a man to come out dressed in camel hair, eating locusts, looking like he is, and, and saying, you need to repent. You need to change your ways. And, and, and subject yourself, humble yourselves to do even what the Gentile, you've asked the Gentiles to do. That was a radical demand. Step down in these waters, these muddy waters of the Jordan River with me. If you've truly repented, step down into these waters with me and let me lower you under the water. And that will be a demonstration that you're serious about preparing your heart for the coming Messiah. But on the other hand, while I have the opportunity, let me just point out the difference between Christian baptism and the baptism of repentance that John was practicing then. As I said, John's baptism of repentance was a baptism of preparation. All these people are looking ahead to the day the Messiah is coming. And I believe there was a messianic frenzy in the air. By the, by the secular setting, they were thinking this is a great time for God to send his Messiah. They're thinking a great political military leader. With the, with the religious corruption, they're thinking this is a great time for God to send his Messiah. They, they had that expectancy. And then you got John the Baptist coming out, out of the wilderness and he's preaching with authority and power that they'd never seen. And so there was a great excitement. And so hence people were coming, as Matthew said, from Jerusalem and Jeru uh, Judea and, and Galilee and even beyond. People were coming by the multitudes to, to hear this man. And, and when their hearts were touched, they would subject, submit themselves to be baptized. So we see this concept of repentance played out as we go back to chapter 3 there. And I'll direct your attention down to verse 9. Because John minces no words. You know, he's already said, you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes. What are you doing? Just trying to get away from the fire? He said that in verse 9, And even now the axe, speaking of the judgment of God, is laid to the root of the trees. Folks, when you chop the roots of a tree, <laughs> that's pretty much terminal. He says, therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Fire is oftentimes in the Old Testament equated with God's judgment. In other words, he says, if your hearts aren't ready when the Messiah comes, you will endure the judgment of God. You want to be ready for the Messiah? Get your life right. Repent. But look, look now how Luke picks up on the different responses of the people. He puts them in categories. Beginning in verse 10, he said, So the people, so this is just general folk. So the people ask him, saying, What shall we do? You said we've got to demonstrate fruit. What shall we do? And John, he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And who, he who has food, let him do likewise. In other words, he said, stop being selfish. Stop being greedy. Start sharing. Doesn't that sound kind of like what Jesus said? 
about the second greatest commandment? You love your neighbor as yourself? Oh, but then the tax collectors. They're in the crowd too. Folks, if you were a tax collector in first century Palestine amongst the Jews at that time, your title, tax collector, was synonymous with sin or sinner. You were, you, you were looked down upon and considered to be a traitor, if you will. Well, they were tax collectors. Their, their hearts had been touched. And they also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what, what shall we do? We're tax collectors. What about us? Can we be ready for the Messiah? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Oh, it was, it was common knowledge that they were, you know, uh, extracting more than what was proper and, and, and right. They were extorting from their own people as they gave taxes to Rome. So he says, you know, don't do that anymore. Repent. Change your ways. And then in verse 14, they were soldiers. These are probably men, military men, who were under the reign of Tiberius, the rule of Tiberius, who were there in the area to keep peace. Even soldiers. Ask him, saying, what shall we do? So he said to them, do not in intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages because there were soldiers who would misuse their power and their authority. They would frame people so as to set, you know, bribe them and make them pay money so that they wouldn't go to prison. And that, that, so he's just saying, stop doing that. Stop intimidating the people. Change your ways. You see, John is saying, give evidence. Now, now dear friend, let me tell you something. The concept of repentance still applies today. Because as the gospel message is being preached and your heart is being convicted by the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, you have to confess, as the Bible says, you are a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So you confess your sin, but it's not good enough just to say, yes, and agree with God, I'm a sinner. God's looking at your heart. And God is looking for repentance. And repentance is turning 180 degrees, turning you back on the sins whether they be sins of relationship, sins of attitude, sins of practice, sins of, of speech, whatever it may be, turn your back on sin and turn towards Jesus Christ by faith and commit to follow Him and to allow Him to be the Lord of your life. So you see, repentance still has a vital role to play in the life of a person coming to Christ. I'm afraid there are a lot of people who like the concept of being a, bar, a part of a Christian fellowship so they'll say anything just to get in. They'll go through the motions just to get on the church roll. Oh, they'll say, oh yeah, I confess my sins. I told the Lord I was sorry about what I did. But you see, that's all in their mind. God's not interested with what you say just with your lips. He's watching your heart. He's watching your life. He's watching the priorities of your life. He's watching the friends you keep with. He watch, he's watching the entertainment that you surround yourself with. He's watching the priorities of your life. He's wanting to see fruit of repentance in the heart of every person who claims to be coming to Christ. Christian baptism is a baptism of identification because as we've seen so beautifully illustrated by our baptismal candidates who came this morning, they fulfilled basically what Paul is sharing in Romans chapter 6. When Paul is writing about how we identify with Christ in baptism, Paul said in chapter 6 of Romans verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us 
as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Baptism is a highly powerful symbolic ordinance because every person that steps into the baptismal pool and publicly professes faith in Jesus Christ and they submit themselves to be baptized, Lord, under the water, they're basically saying that I have died with Christ. My old sinful nature has died to Christ, just as Christ died. But praise God, just as my Savior was placed in that tomb and three days later he raised up victorious in, in the power and the glory of God, I too share in that resurrection. And every person that comes to be baptized as a Christian is looking back to the cross. They're looking back to the empty tomb. They're looking back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and saying, that's me. Because Christ now lives in me. It's interesting as we go back to Luke's Gospel chapter 3. The people are excited. Like I said, there's a spirit of expectancy. They sense, man, God's up to something. We've never seen a crusade like this. We've never heard preaching like this. We've never seen the Spirit of God move on the hearts of people from all strata of life. And so they're thinking to one another as probably people would today. Could, could this guy, I mean, even though he, he looks kind of shaggy, could, could he possibly be the Messiah? I mean, he fits some of the categories. He seems to be an instrument of God. In verse 15 it says, and now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not, I want you to see how quickly John squelches and dispels that notion. In verse 16, John answered, saying to them, uh, saying to them all, I indeed baptize you with water, but the one, speaking of Jesus Christ, but the one, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. Well, don't lose that imagery. Because that's the image of the lowest household slave when the master comes in with his dirty, nasty feet. And he stands there or sits down and it's the task of that servant to untie the thongs of the, of the uh, cords or the straps of the master's sandals. John says, listen, don't you even think about referring to me as the Messiah. I'm not even worthy. I'm lower than that lowest household servant. I'm not even worthy to stoop down to untie his shoes. I'm just baptizing you with water, but he's going to baptize those of you who truly repent and come to him by faith. He will baptize you by the Spirit of God. And you will live. But the same Messiah who will baptize by the Holy Spirit is also coming to baptize by fire. To many he will be Savior. And Lord, but to even more, he will be the eternal judge who will say on that fateful day at that great white throne of judgment, depart, I've never known you, and you will depart into the eternal fires of hell. John says, I'm not the Messiah. Please don't make that mistake. He is greater than I. Look at verse 17. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly purge his thresh threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Another imagery of judgment 
that we find even in the Old Testament speaking of the day of judgment when God will separate from the wheat from the chaff. There will be that day. God will separate out those who simply give superficial confessions with their mouth. They give word uh, uh, confessions to, to be Christians and they, they, they profess to be Christians but their hearts have never truly changed. So we see John confronting the sinful hearts of the people with his ministry, preparing the hearts of the people for their Messiah, but he also exposes the hypocritical and evil hearts of their leaders. First of all, the superficial leaders of Judaism, speaking of the high priests, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders of that time. You see, Matthew, that's why it's important. In Luke's gospel, as we look there in verse 7, he talked about then he, he said to the multitudes they came, that came out to be baptized, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourself, we are Abraham, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Now there's no doubt, in a general way, John was speaking to the general public. There, there are a lot of people who were caught up in legalism and they thought their works would make them okay with God. They, they had no intentions of, of truly repenting and changing their lives. But, but Matthew, in his gospel, helps us to see the picture a little clearer. I believe that John surely could have maybe hit some of the general population, but in chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel, we see there in verse 7, very clearly, this is who John is nailing. If you look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, it says, But when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, He's nailing the false, legalistic, apostasy-promoting leaders of Judaism. He says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and probably any high priest or priest that in the crowd, he says, you are that bunch of snakes. You are that slithering bunch of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How dare you come in here with your legalistic religious notions and think that God is going to accept you. John's method was not the most politically correct and certainly not the most polished. But he nailed it where it needed to be nailed. But you know, John's ministry not only had convicting power over the evil hearts of religious leaders, but as we close in chapter 3 of Luke, Luke inserts an interesting side note. In verse... 19. And Herod the Tetrarch, remember, I told you at the beginning, he was the governor. He's the son of Herod the Great. He has rule over Galilee. This is the region that Nazareth, when Jesus came from, and probably John is circulating up in that area. But, but Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him, him who? John. Concerning Herodias. Who is Herodias? Well, she's family. She's his half-brother's, uh, Philip's wife. Not, not the Philip that we saw that, that is one of the governors, but a Philip who was a layman that lived in Rome. 
And on a visit, we're told, Herod made, the Tetrarch made to Rome, he became infatuated with Herodias, his beautiful sister-in-law, stepsister-in-law. So he begins to connive with his brother's wife how he would like to have her as one of his wives. And so he ditches his own wife, which angers her father, because that was a political arrangement in the first place. So he's got two strikes against him now. And Herodias, because her husband's just an ordinary layman, she likes this idea about being a governor's wife. And so she, you know, there's, sounds like a Hallmark movie, doesn't it? Or probably juicier than that. But anyway, there's this romance that stirs. And so now he's married to or living with his brother's wife. Probably many people, just like people in today's culture, would probably just, so what? Everybody does their own thing. But it caught the eye of the prophet. As it would any true man of God. And he called him out. Because he was living with his brother's wife. And for all the evils which Herod had done. Also added this above all. That he shut John up in prison. This cost John dearly. But you see, when you're called by God to proclaim the truth of God's Word, when you're called by the Lord as a Christian to be a witness, you don't get to pick and choose who you tell the truth to. You don't always go out there and single out just those that like you and, and have a palatable heart towards what you're going to say. When God prompts you to speak the truth, of course, as the Bible says, speak the truth in love, the truth sometimes is caustic. The truth sometimes is confrontational. The truth sometimes will cost you. But you see, that's how committed John was. He realized he had been called by God to prepare the way as Isaiah said there in chapter 40, and it's quoted in verse 4 of chapter 3 of, of, of Luke. He says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. And the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's what John was doing. I thought about this on one of our trips to Kenya. The, the far western, it was a very rural area of Kenya, rough area, and yet the president of Kenya was supposed to come there. He hadn't been there in a long time, years. And it was always kind of ironic, kind of like American politics. The president was coming to the region. They had every common man, woman out there with shovels because they had some of the worst roads in the world. Folks, you think you got potholes here in America? I've seen Volkswagens disappear in potholes in Kenya. But they were filling in the potholes. They were making those rough roads smooth. The president's coming. The president's coming. They're straightening out the roads. Man, they were so proud. Not, you know, didn't mind the fact that he would never come back, but <laughs> here's coming. And I thought about that as, as this prophecy. But John's not interested in opening up smooth roads. John's not interested in filling in potholes. John's not make, he's not interested in making the roads smooth and straight. John's interested in getting hearts right with God. Fill 
in the potholes of your life that are eaten up with sin, with confession and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Make the way from being crooked and devious and sinful to being straight, guided by the true light of the Word of God. And be ready for the Messiah. I'll tell you, I, I, I thank God for a man like John the Baptist. And what a wonderful example he is to all of us. Because guess what? Every one of us who are Christians are to some degree or another a forerunner of the Messiah. People in your life, your lives, who don't know Jesus Christ, who are walking in the darkness of sin, rebelling against God, you are the one who are preparing the way for them to encounter the Son of God. Be ready. Be bold. And stand on the Word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.